As Christmas of 1978 fast approached, there were many in the Chicagoland area that were not filled with the holiday spirit, but instead were filled with worry and dread. Many of these people had not been in the mood to celebrate much of anything, some of them for years, as they had been heartbroken by their loved one that had gone missing at various times throughout the years of 1972 through 1978. Now, as of December 22nd of 1978, the local papers and TV news were reporting nonstop of a man who had been arrested for murdering young Robert Peast, and they were unearthing remains from his crawl space on a daily basis. Every day, the number of victims grew, as did the number of onlookers that stood outside of his home to watch this macabre death march of victims' skeletal remains being placed in body bags and then carried from the crawl space, through the house, and out to the waiting vehicles that would transport the victims to the county morgue, with the hope of being able to identify whose remains, in fact, they were. So, while Gacy had led the boys of the Delta unit down to the area of the Displains River that he had been dumping the victims' bodies, they had not recovered the body of Robert Peast. And this particular task remained of the utmost importance to the Displains police. I can't even begin to imagine just how surreal the last 12 days must have been for the Peast family. And there must have been some part of them, and all of us for that matter, as parents and as human beings, that until you see your child slain before you with your own eyes, that you hold out some type of hope that this has all just been a vivid, horrible nightmare that you will soon wake from. The parents of every child from the Chicagoland area that had gone missing at some point and had not returned must have had never-ending feelings of unease churning in the pits of their stomachs as they watched the grainy images being broadcast from 8213 Somerdale talking about the monster who had been preying on children and young men for years. And yet, all they could do was wait, as the painstaking process of trying to identify the bodies begins, hoping against hope that they would never hear their son's name being read off of a teleprompter by some reporter as an identified victim recovered from the creep's house of horrors. I often think of just how unimaginable that must have been to experience, and I just can't get there in my mind, because it is exactly just that, unimaginable. Episode 16. Beyond Reason's Realm. We left off with Gacy being denied bond by Judge Peters on December 22nd, and he would spend only one more evening in the comparatively cozy confines of the holding cell of the Displains Police Department before being transferred to Cook County Jail. Now, you see, Cook County Jail is filled with murderers, rapists, and petty thieves, and everything in between. 
but no one in any jail or prison is more reviled than offenders that do harm to children. There is an unwritten rule that inmates understand and abide by, which dictates that when men such as Gacy enter the facility, they are entering a world of pain, and there is a strong likelihood that they will not survive in prison, at least not in Gen Pop. And Gacy, well, he had zero chance of skulking into Cook County Jail as an unknown in terms of what he was in for, because everyone knew. There is little doubt he would have been walking into Cook County Jail as a marked man. In the meantime, back at the Creeps house, the excavation enters day two, as Dr. Stein had halted the dig on the first night shortly after the first bones had been discovered. They needed a plan. They had information from Gacy that there were a lot of bodies down there. But at that point, they simply didn't know if he was full of shit or not seems like a strange thing to lie about, killing 30 people, but they simply didn't know for sure. What they did know was that if what Gacy was saying was true, then they had to come up with some organized manner by which to conduct the excavation. On the second day of the dig, two of Gacy's victims were unearthed. And he goes, yeah, 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 just handle it. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and hung up. You know, none of this, oh, please, please come. No, no, go ahead. And so uh, the next day we show up there and the chief is there and the deputy chief is there and this throng of people, just, just, I have no idea who they all were. Uh, I knew our guys were there. And so um, we go in there and, you know, first thing was we can't raise the house because you got to, take a beam and put it through there and jack it all up from the side. Well, the houses were too close, so you couldn't get a beam in there. And we had some guys who had been in construction and uh, they kind of figured this isn't gonna work. So how are we gonna do this? And I'm going, we got this much room here. We're not, 28 inches was the best we had. And there was no way we were gonna dig and bring all that dirt out and all this stuff. Well. I guess we'll have to take the floor up. Okay, well, how are we gonna do that? We'll call the Chicago Fire Department flying squad to come over here and rip this place apart, which is what they did. They came in and just whacked this whole thing, took walls down and all kinds of stuff. And um, the very next day, we did it right away. And I took up part of the floorboards. And, um, and so we decided just flip a coin we'd start in that southeast corner. And uh, cause we knew we had a full body there. We figured we did laying pretty close to the surface. A lot of these guys were only about three or four inches down. Uh, there wasn't a lot of dirt over them. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, I go down and I start uncovering this body. And uh, again, no one else is volunteering. So I go down and do it. And, uh, but our Lieutenant uh, L. Taylor was in charge now, cause he was in charge of us, but you know, being as Darimo wasn't there, he was gonna run this show. And he said to us, okay, I want a guy down there digging and you're gonna get tired. And then you know, I want the guy who was doing the pictures to go down in there. And uh, you know, and who was Pat Jones? 
who did not was not crazy about bodies actually and uh so he says after i get this guy uncovered okay dan get out of there pat you go down and pat goes down there and you go and 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 i'm like what are you nuts <laughs> i says pat you want me to do that and he goes oh, yeah yeah and did you ever see anybody levitate he came up out of the hole and i went down i probably levitated too and i went down and got to the head of the body and Elsko, the lieutenant is going and the chief is standing next to him and he goes and he just shuts him up <laughs> and, and Stein's there and, and the medical examiner and I go Are you want the head doc because that was pre-DNA we had nothing like that and we knew we didn't, couldn't get fingerprints here so what are we going to use the teeth is the best thing we had and uh, he says yeah go ahead Danny and, and and so I reached down there and get the head and just disconnected from the neck bones and come and hand it to the doctor and all these all these guy people are with suits on are standing up there going you know it was weird it just was weird and uh, so anyway that's when we took off you know uh, Dr. Stein kept going thank God it's you guys because Chicago police hates everybody anybody they have any the slightest conflict with they don't like them and we were told you go down there and you be really nice to that guy because he's a county guy we're county guys and we'll learn from him and we did and all his other doctors before the creep was to be transferred to cook county jail he had some more info that he apparently wanted to get off his chest so at 5.15 p.m. on December 22nd of 1978, Gacy made his third statement to the Displains police. Mike Albrecht and ASA Larry Finder were the only two men in the room during this particular statement. Right, you heard what I just said. They were the only two men in the room. The creep's lawyers are conspicuously absent. Again, the fact that Albrecht feels like he has the ability to speak to Gacy again tells us one thing, that still, after two statements, neither Amaranti or Stevens has asserted their client's rights. It's unfathomable, because if Amaranti had settled on the insanity defense, which he had, to let his client continue to make statements which show planning, evasion, and awareness, he's literally making the state's case that he is, in fact, legally sane. Remember, this statement comes after Gacy has been in front of the judge and bail has been denied. So Gacy at this point is realizing that he isn't going anywhere anytime soon. As his Valium haze at this point after 29 hours in custody has lifted. Let's see where Gacy's head's at as he begins to accept just how real shit is getting for him at this particular juncture. As always, I will be reading Albrecht's written statement verbatim of what he recollects from his notes of Gacy's third confession. At approximately 5.15 p.m. on December 22, 1978, 
Aro has occasion to take John Gacy to his cell in the Desplaines police lockup, cell C-1. At that time, as John Gacy was being put in the cell, he indicated that he wanted to speak with Larry and myself. He indicated that Larry meant the assistant state's attorney, Larry Finder, to whom he had been speaking with earlier in the day. I indicated that I would get Mr. Finder and return to the cell area to speak with John Gacy. When Mr. Finder and myself returned to the cell block area, Mr. Finder indicated to Gacy that he did not have to speak to us. In fact, if he did speak with us, anything that he did say could be used against him. Gacy replied that he understood his Miranda rights and that it was his business and he wanted to speak with us. It was his decision. He also said that he knew what his rights were. Subsequently, he began to recite the Miranda rights from memory. Gacy initially started speaking of the events of December 11, 1978, and the murder of Robert Peast. In summary, John Gacy related the following to Mr. Finder and the reporting officer regarding those events of December 11th. Gacy had been at Nissan Drug on Tui Avenue completing a remodeling job. He left the store for the evening and upon returning home, determined that he had left his appointment book at the store. This being very important to him, Gacy returned to the store at around 8 or 8.30. He stayed in the store for a short time and then left through the front door to his vehicle, which was parked in the front of the store. As Gacy started to leave the area, he noticed Robert Peast coming out of the store and started to come towards his vehicle. Gacy motioned to Peace to come around to the other side of the car and to get in. Peace indicated to Gacy that he was interested in working and making money. Gacy then asked him how much time he had, and Peace said about 30 minutes to an hour. Now, this is complete and utter bullshit, as we have Gacy in his own words back in episode two say that Peace had only told him that he only had a couple of minutes to talk. So Gacy says that they could take a ride and talk about the job. Gacy immediately goes to his home in Norwood Park. During the trip to his home, there was small talk about how liberal Peast was. And also, Peast indicated how important it was for him to make money. At the house, Gacy and Peast went inside. Gacy asked Peast if he would have sex with a man. And Peast answered him that he would not have sex with a man. To which Gacy asked him, What if it involves a lot of money? and Peace indicated that he would have to think about it. At this time, Gacy interjected in the conversation that he hated people who had sex for money and that he was not a homosexual. He didn't consider himself a homosexual and he never forced sex on anybody and that only homosexuals have sex for money and are forceful with their sex acts. He then talked about Peace again, saying that he told Peace he was a clown and he had a few tricks he could show him. Gacy told Peast that he had an interesting trick to show Peast with handcuffs. He told Peast to put the handcuffs on behind his back, loosely, not making them tight. Gacy put the second handcuff on Peast behind his back. Gacy then indicated to Peast how restricted a person would be when they had both handcuffs on them in this position. Gacy says at this time it appeared that Peast began getting noticeably scared and wanted to go home. Yeah, no shit. Reporting officer then asked Gacy how he took the clothes off Peast. Initially, he said, Peast took his own clothes off. I replied to him, 
how can he take his own clothes off with handcuffs behind his back? He answered by saying, the piece did not try to stop him when he started to take his pants off. He took off Peace's pants and then performed oral sex on Peace. After that, Peace became very scared and wanted to leave. Peace was in tears. Gacy told him he only had one more trick to show you, and that trick is the rope trick. Gacy indicated that he put the rope around Peace's neck, tied a loose knot at the neck, and another knot a few inches from his neck, and a third knot about two inches from the second knot. See, what you do here is you insert a stick between the second and third knots, and you twist. With the third twist, the cord becomes tight on his neck, and Peace starts choking. Gacy indicated shortly thereafter, victims would pass out and convulse sometimes for very long periods of time. Reporting officer then asked Gacy if he had anal sex with Peast. Gacy replied that he didn't. But Jack may have, 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 have. Do you remember, uh, what was the date you said you met uh, Jack Hanley for the first time? Well, that's being a winner because it was during hockey season. That was, hockey season was the only season that I worked late hours. The winner of what? 75? No. Jack Hanley, 71. 71. 70 or 71. Because I was cooking for a black box. You remember specifically the first time you ever used the name? Remember specifically? No. No, I would have to just assume that I, I used it. What makes you think you used it at all, John? Yeah, why did you say you used the name? If you don't remember specifically. Oh, because, all right, here, when, when you when you picked up a prostitute and, and you cut a deal for money, and then they kept insisting that I was a police officer, and then I'd, I'd come back as a police officer. You know, I said, yeah, Jack Hanley. Do you remember that? Yes. You mean they insisted you were a police officer and you came back as a police officer? Well, when they kept insisting, you know, they said, no, no, I don't want the money, I'll, I'll do anything. I said, fine. I said, if you ever need a favor, I said, just, just tell me you know Jack Hanley. But I used to always tell him I was a vice officer. I don't know, for, for some for some Jay reason. Jay Hanley, uh, homosexual? No. I, I don't think he likes him. Who doesn't like him? The Jack Hanley? The vice or officer. Vice captain. No, well, I, I don't, you know, I, I didn't like homosexuals. Jack Hanley, who you say you were, uh, did he ever participate in any kind of homosexual activities? Was he homosexual, Jack Hanley? Well, he would learn to bisexual. Jack Hanley ever participate in heterosexual activities? Did he ever have sex with a woman? The Jack Hanley, who you were? Only prostitutes. Male prostitutes? Female, yes. female prostitutes. So you, you see, that, I told you that before, Sam. They keep going over all of this stuff and they keep stating that everybody I picked up was male. And they also state that I, I hung around gay bars. And to the best of my knowledge, I have never been in a gay bar other than the one time, which I think was in 1975, with Florence Johnson's two sons. And it was long around 2.30 in the morning, and we were, 
I was going actually up to Uptown with him. You know, we had left Newtown. We had went to a hockey game. We had dinner at Bruno's. From there, we went bar hopping. We stopped at the Crystal Pistol on, on Wells, and then we, we bar hopped from there. As we were bar, other bars? Crystal Pistol? No, that's a, that's that's a, a, a drinking bar. They used to have Gogo Girl dance Gogo, yeah, strippers right? there. And from there, we headed down, uh, we are going down Clark Street, and they said, in fact, we stopped at the Gold Diggers on Clark around close to Fullerton. Then from there, we, we kept going down. We just kept hitting different spots. They wanted to stop at the annex. They seen the sign annex. He said, there's a place still open. I said, no, you don't want to go in there because it's gay. He said, no. He said, no, let's go in. So we went in there. And it, the place was packed, so they, they assumed that the place was jumping. So we, we had a couple of beers. We ordered a round of beers. And before we could even finish them, they wanted to leave. Let me interrupt you. And you had sex with female prostitutes as well as male prostitutes, right? Oral copulation. Okay, now they participate in the same type of games, extortion like that, right? Female prostitutes, male prostitutes, Sam, don't they? Yeah, I would imagine they could, but the thing that is, is that most of them, uh, oral population was performed in a car in an alley or something like that, or under the L track. Do you know? How come you never, how come you never kill a female prostitute? I don't know. They're cunts. I mean, they get, you know, I don't, they want to extort money out of Yeah, but I don't know if I never did kill anybody. What do you mean? Do you know whether or not any of those bodies recovered were female or male? I don't know. I don't recall. I don't recall. Just just like what's been going over my mind is, where in the hell did I come up with the number that I come up with? Where did I come up with the 27 or 26 in the house, one in the garage, and five in the where do, where do I get those numbers? I rack my brain right, here. Let's talk about that. Let's go I keep going over and over and over and over. I don't, I don't recall. And now when he jogged my mind, so because you seem to be calling me drinking. Remember that in my office, you were drinking. Do you remember when you had a drink in my office? No, I don't remember drinking. You anymore. had almost a whole fucking bottle of uh, of uh, VO. You had about you had at least a drink. cup and a half of VO, a whole big cup, you know, those coffee cups. I put a little bit in. You said fill it up. But the whole thing, you drank it down, and it gave you more, and you're sipping on it. I don't recall it. Remember? I know I had done bad yeah, before I came by you. At this point, Gacy is pretty clear-headed, and he has been waiting to insert his invisible friend, Jack Hanley, into the mix in this particular statement as well. I believe that Gacy really believes that he has this thing all figured out. And with that, he's going to continue to push the alter ego, multiple personality disorder narrative. He's been throwing the Hanley name out in every statement thus far usually accompanied with some theatrics like eye fluttering and slight body convulsions so as to appear that John Gacy is leaving the conversation and Jack Hanley is entering it. In this portion of the statement, Gacy is only referring to Jack and the things that Jack may or may not have done, as opposed to Jack actually being present for this conversation. One question I will certainly be asking mental health professionals that we interview for this podcast is whether or not in a multiple personality disorder situation, the different personalities share common memories. Meaning if it really was Jack Hanley that killed all of these young men, would John Gacy share those memories? If not, how the hell does he know what Hanley likes or doesn't like? Don't get me wrong here. I think this multiple personality thing that Creep is pushing is complete bullshit. Not overall, mind you, but 
in relation to Gacy. I do have to say though, he must have been concocting this plan as the cops closed in because he threw it out there immediately in his first statement. We will dig into that, I promise. But for now, back to the statement. I asked him if Jack usually had anal sex with his victims, and Gacy answered affirmatively, indicating he couldn't get hard any other way. That was the only way he could do it. Mr. Finder then asked Gacy if he could explain how he did the rope trick. Gacy asked if he could use a rope, and this officer told him that that wasn't possible. And Gacy, he answered, Shit, I'm not going to kill ya. Gacy then reached into his pants and took out a rosary and asked Mr. Finder to put his arm through the cell doors. He had the rosary in his hand and he indicated to us that Mr. Finder's fist would be the head and his wrist the neck. He then put the rosary around Mr. Finder's wrist, tying a loose knot right at the wrist and then two knots further down from that point. He then put a pencil between the second and third knots and then twisted. He indicated that it would just take three or four quick turns and the victim would be strangled. He then took the rosary off Mr. Finder's wrist and put it back in his pocket. Casey then added that after the peace boy was strangled, he took the body off the floor and put it in the bed and slept with it during the night. The following morning when he got up for work, he grabbed the body, he put it in the attic right at the top of the stairs. Casey demonstrated that he would put the body over his shoulder and walk up the attic stairs. After placing the body in the attic, Gacy proceeded through a normal work day. Gacy then mentioned that while the body was in the attic at the end of his work day, in early evening, Lieutenant Kozenzak of the Des Police Department came to his residence. Gacy referred to Lieutenant Kozenzak as an asshole. Immediately after Lieutenant Kozenzak left his home, Gacy went up, retrieved the body, and placed it down at the bottom of the attic stairs. He put the body down on the floor. His back doorbell then rang. He answered it and found it to be Mike Rossi. Gacy previously made arrangements with Rossi to go to a Christmas tree lot owned by Ron Rohde to look at trees. Gacy made an excuse to Rossi and told him that he wouldn't be able to go with him at that time period. After Rossi left, Gacy returned to the body, put the body in an orange blanket, and put it in the trunk of his car. Gacy then went southbound on I-294 to I-55. Gacy came up on the bridge where it goes over the Des River and stopped on the bridge. He had intentions of throwing the body over the bridge, but he was unable to immediately do it and he heard on the CB traffic of a Smokey being on the bridge. That being an unmarked cop car, which was apparently referring to his own vehicle. He then proceeds to make a few passes back and forth from the bridge until he felt that it was a good time to be able to throw the body over the side. He stopped on the inside lanes of southbound I-294 and threw the body into the river. From that point, he proceeded back towards Chicago on I-294. In the vicinity of Old Chicago, he threw out Peace's identification, and shortly thereafter, he threw out the orange blanket that Peace's body had been wrapped in. Gacy ended speaking of the Peace incident by saying that if he hadn't forgotten his appointment book at Nissan Pharmacy, none of this would have happened. So, Darren and I have long thought 
that this particular scenario was complete and utter bullshit. Gacy's story has always been he was contacted by Larry Torf, the owner of Nissan, saying that he had forgotten his appointment book there. Darren and I believe that that was left there purposefully and that Gacy knew that he'd get called back and knew that he would be there at the time that Peace was getting off work. And he knew that Peace had heard him talking about giving out summer jobs. We think that the entire thing was planned by Gacy. None of it was by, by happenstance. None of it was by mistake. It was all a plot in order to get Peace out of the pharmacy and into his vehicle. What Gacy didn't take into consideration or had no way of knowing was that it was Mrs. Peace's birthday and that she was going to be there to pick him up what she was. And additionally, when you think about the timing of it, Gacy was called almost immediately after he left. As soon as he got home, he went to his machine, as he always did, and listened to the messages. And on the messages is where he hears that he left the book. So this is at six o'clock. If Gacy had intentions to go get the book immediately, and that was his only intention, why didn't he go right away? Well, because that wasn't in the plans. That wouldn't have worked because Rob Peace would have had to work for three more hours. Now, the only way it worked was the way that it happened, and it had to happen at that time. So now back to the statement. Reporting officer then asked Gacy how he managed to put the rope on the victim. Gacy replied at times he didn't have to. Some of the victims would put the rope around their own neck, anticipating seeing a rope trick. At other times, he could put the rope around their neck while they were facing him. Again under the auspices of showing them a rope trick. Mr. Finer then asked Gacy when he started killing his victims. Gacy said he thought it started around 1974, and then he proceeded to tell us about his first victim. Gacy was down at the Greyhound bus station in Chicago when he met a young man. He began talking with the young man, and the gentleman indicated that he was horny and would like to cruise the city to see if they could find some women. They drove around for a while, but they could not locate any women. Gacy then began talking to the young man, saying that there was more than one way to have sex. He said he did this in order to find out if this man might be bisexual. The young man responded to Gacy, saying that two men could have sex. Gacy pretended to be ignorant, not knowing what he was talking about. The young man responded to Gacy, saying there was no difference for a man to get a blowjob from a man or from a woman. It was all the same thing. After this statement, Gacy asked the young man if he'd like to go to his home for a few drinks, to which he accepted, and they then proceeded to Gacy's house. Gacy then asked the young man, Would you like to spend the night? To which he replied he would. Shortly thereafter, they had sexual relations and then went to bed. Gacy then related he woke up for some unknown reason in the morning. Well, maybe he woke up because it was the morning. And at that time, when he did wake up, he found out the young man was coming at him with a knife. He struggled with the young man, but he wrestled the knife away from him and then stabbed him three or four times in the chest. The victim was dead, and I took him down into the crawl space and buried him. Reporting officer asked John Casey if he knew what this man's name was. He said he wasn't sure, giving the name as possibly Randy or even possibly David. He just wasn't sure. It was Tim McCoy. That we 
are sure of. It seems to me to be possible, even likely, that Gacy would not recollect certain victims' names, at least the ones that didn't work for him. But the creep had a memory like a steel trap. Therefore, I find it completely unbelievable that he did not have a very clear, independent memory of each and every young man he killed. He wasn't the guy who would be trying to repress memories of his murders to spare his psyche. No, I think it's quite the opposite, that he consistently had these memories floating in and out of his mind, as it was the thing that made him feel most powerful. And it was these thoughts that would fuel him on day-to-day basis until he killed again. I don't think that the memories of new victims would supplant the old memories. I think that they would supplement them. A memory library of his most twisted and powerful moments. He was such an accomplished liar that it's incredibly challenging to sift through his bullshit to try and pluck the kernels of truth that are peppered throughout not only these statements, but the tapes as well. The reason that we want to try and separate fact from fiction is because we believe Gacy killed more than he has claimed in these statements. Possibly many more. When it was time to transfer him to the county from our lockup, uh, I was assigned to along with uh, Detective Adams and Detective Ryan. And uh, Gacy was all upset because the media was all over outside and he didn't want to do a perp walk. And of course, I finally convinced him that if he did that, I would uh, drive him by the cemetery to say goodbye to his father. And so he did his perp walk. The media was happy and got him out of our... But then they started following us. I mean, a guy with a rooftop sticking out over the top. And so then I turned the tables. I said, look, I said, they're going to desecrate your father's grave if we go there. So he said, okay, maybe we should. So good. I I really wasn't planning on taking him anyway, but I had to find a way to (laughs) break it to him. So uh, on the way there, uh, Detective Adams was a juvenile officer. He was quite concerned uh, about whether Rob Peace had suffered, and he was asking him about it. I'm elbowing him to tell him to shut up because I wanted to talk more serious stuff. So finally he did, and what I said to him, I says, John, I says, seriously, I says, you know, how many people did you really kill? And he says, eh. he says, I told my lawyers 30-some-odd, you guys know about 30, what, 33, 34, he says, the ones at the house. And at that time, he also said five at the river. He mentioned five, not four, but we only got four. And uh, he says, but he says, you know what, 45 sounds like a good number. I said, well, that's good. Well, where are they? Tell me. He said, oh, no. He says, you're the detective. That's for you to find out. And that was, again, one of those things that if he knew that you were going to find out or you already knew, he'd be honest. But he knew I didn't have any way of proving it, so he was dangling this in front of me. While Gacy is giving his third statement, my father, as he indicated in the last episode, was in the law library trying to find a case which simply did not exist regarding prior restraint, which, simply put, is censorship by the government 
usually the judicial branch, of material that would be published or printed. The First Amendment provides this protection of our precious right of freedom of speech. So Amaranti is inexplicably concerned about Dr. Stein going on TV and claiming that Gacy is sane, yet he leaves the creep to his own devices and allows him to say whatever the hell comes into his mind during his stream of consciousness confessions. These two concepts are in complete contradiction to one another. I mean, who gives a shit what Dr. Stein is saying when you have Gacy giving a blow-by-blow account of what he's been up to over the last six years? Lead prosecutor Bill Kunkel is unwittingly being handed wonderful tidings of good cheer on this holiday season by the killer that sits in the holding cell at the Desplaines police station as Gacy continues to gift-wrap the case for the state with every word that pours out of his mouth. So anyway, that was decided that the site should be set, shut down that night, which was a great relief to me, because I didn't want to go over there right now. And uh, so the site was closed until, uh, I don't know, 9 or 10 the next day to give time for us to talk to Stein after he talked to Snow and uh, time for me to and notify the state's attorney and so forth. And So in any event, uh, the first person I called was Mike Vaccaro, the chief of the criminal division, and told him to get somebody uh, that knew what they were doing uh, with serious experience at 26th Street from the felony trial courts out there the next day uh, to uh, assist uh, the district folks. And uh, Bob Egan, uh, it turned out at the time, was living on Cumberland in an apartment building uh, literally around the corner from Somerdale uh, and uh, within blocks of Gacy's house. And so Egan uh, was assigned to go uh, out to Des Plaines uh, and or to the site, uh, and along with uh, Tom Organ, O-R-G-A-N, who was a very experienced felony trial assistant that lived up in that area. And so those assignments were made, and they were out at 7 in the morning. And then uh, after talking to Mike, I called uh, Barry Gross, the first assistant state's attorney, and we talked about it. Uh, and he was pretty much irate that this was the first uh, that he and the state's attorney were hearing about this. Uh, I wasn't very happy myself about that, but there it was. And so we uh, agreed uh, again that we would talk tomorrow. I asked him if he wanted me to call the state's attorney, and he said no. Uh, he would talk to him very early in the morning. Uh, that would be better. Uh, he wasn't going to do anything tonight anyway. And then they would uh, call me, and we set a, set a specific time, and I said, well, I would probably be out in Des Plaines by such and such a time. And we continued to communicate. And uh, I believe it was by around noon of that day, if not first thing in the morning, that Bernie personally talked to me uh, and asked and uh, talked to me about assigning the case. And uh, I said, well, I would really like to do it myself. 
Uh, I've had a lot of experience in uh, the insanity defense. I was a biology major, so I know the medical terminology that's going to be big in this. Uh, you know what my experience is. And, and I said, now the only other two people in the office that I think that could try this case based on the psychiatric experience would be Mike Vaccaro, who's chief of criminal, and Greg Janex, who was chief of municipal. And I said, now the problem is uh, I've been chief of felony and I've been chief of uh, criminal before, as you know. And I said, we would have to replace them in that job for that for a year at least because you cannot do those two jobs uh, and do this at the same time i said but you know you just appointed me as chief deputy about a month ago and i for the prior six months barry's been carrying all that load under you uh himself um, there's going to be a huge crush for the first several months, and then there's going to be a long, and then there's going to be a big crush at trial. And I said, I think I can handle it, and I think it will be easier for the office if I handle it, not to mention if we start having open auditions, we're going to have a bloodbath of people stepping on each other trying to get to this case. And he said, no, I agree with you on all points. He said, I Frankly, personally, I wanted you to try it anyway. And uh, so I said, I'd be delighted. And that was when I took over the case Saturday. It was uh, uh, amazing. So while Gacy continues to give copious amounts of information to his officers, Lieutenant Joe Kozenzak is not getting the information that he desires most which is the exact location of Rob Peast's body. He has his detectives reaching out to every town south of the city that sits on the bank of the Des Plaines River to see if they have discovered any floaters recently. This plan also comes up empty. Kozak has it in his mind that Gacy may have buried Peast's body at Mary Hill Cemetery, as the search of the creep's house on the 21st netted a map of that particular cemetery. He begins making the necessary arrangements for a dig to take place at the most common place for digs. Kozenzak will find Robbie's body, not just for the Peasts and not just for Bill Kunkel, who needs the body for the case, but for himself. He has gone this far. He has done so much to make this case happen. He will not allow his legacy to be left incomplete. No, not on his watch. So as the story of the killer clown of Chicago devours the news cycle and becomes a national story, the clown himself continues on with his third statement in a room with two agents of the state and no defense lawyers. And we will get to the rest of that statement on the next episode of Defense Diaries. And we'd like to give a shout out to our Patreon members, our defense team members. We adore you guys and we appreciate your support so, so much. It means so much to us. And to all the listeners out there, 
Of course, as always, we always, always appreciate you listening consistently. It means the world to us as well, because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Old ass man. See you next time. Now, we had earlier alerted you to the fact that we would be establishing a toll-free tip line in the hopes that we can collectively work to identify the six remaining victims who deserve to be known. So if you have information or know someone that has information that could possibly be helpful to the cause, please do not hesitate in contacting us. Everything that is passed on to us will be directly forwarded to law enforcement. If you want to remain anonymous, do that. If you want to leave your information, do that. But if you have any information that could be helpful, please do it and make the call. The number is 844-78-VIC-23. That's 844-78-VIC-23. We truly hope to hear from you. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.